Hello, and welcome to the Advances in Surgery podcast channel, your number one site for all resources in the surgical healthcare community. Let's continue with COVID-19 Resources Center Series. Hello and welcome to this podcast, a collaboration between the Johnson & Johnson Institute and the AIS channel. My name is Tan Aralampalan. I am a surgeon based in the UK. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking to a friend and colleague, uh, Professor Salvador Morales Conde. Uh, Salva, hola, buenos dias. Hola, que tal? How are you doing? Good to talk to you. Very good. Nice to be with you. Great. It's lovely. Now, I must introduce you to our, our audience. Uh, you are the chief of the unit of uh, innovation in minimal invasive surgery at the University Hospital Virgen uh, del Rocio, president-elect of the European Association of Endoscopic Surgeons and the Spanish Association of Surgeons. So how do you find the time to do all of this? Well, uh, it's kind of crazy. But um, as I mentioned to you before, of um, of the of the podcast, I was uh, running back and forth and doing a lot of effort and working some extra hours. But but it, it's very interesting. You learn a lot. That's the main important message. As much you do, as much you you learn. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. It, it, it's all about that. And actually, for me, it's brought surgeons from all around the world so much closer together pandemic, uh, the COVID crisis has hit so many countries um, and I know Spain was particularly brutally hit right at the beginning. How, just tell me, so you're based in Sevilla, how did it affect you? Uh, what, what, were the, what were the real uh, uh, crises that you had to deal with in your region? Yeah, in terms of my hospital and where I live, um, I have to I have to tell you that, that we were kind of uh, relaxed compared with Madrid and Barcelona because um, Madrid and Barcelona it was really, really bad. And even in the past country in the north, it still maintained a level with less than 25% of our uh, wars with COVID patients and with the, um, the ICU. So we can say that, that in, in the bill itself, we just, um, our resources in the hospital were kept for the, in case the number were increasing, but, but we weren't hit as it was in Madrid and Barcelona. To give you some numbers, I think the number of cases that we have in the hospital was uh, around 400 uh, during the period. Uh, and but if you go, for example, to just one hospital in Madrid, I got a call from one colleague and they have more than 1,000 cases at the same wow. time. So look at the difference. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, Madrid, Barcelona, the, the health system was on the verge of collapse. Uh, right. And and yet you you were able to maintain your services. And, and presumably, like all of us, you stopped all elective operating. Yeah, and, that's the main difference with, with Madrid and Barcelona. The, the number of cases that we have gave us the opportunity to keep operating oncological cases. Uh, if you go to Madrid and Barcelona, they didn't have the chance to operate any oncological cases during this, during this last month. So that means that restarting is totally different in those hospitals 
in the capital of Spain, in Barcelona, than in Seville, because now we are ready to start with a benign procedure with the same level of oncological cases that we normally do. But for example, you go to Madrid or Barcelona, restarting means taking care of those cases that they did, those oncological cases that they didn't do during the last month. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, there was uh, once once the lockdown started, there was a cessation of all of our cases. And actually, for us as doctors and surgeons, you know, there is a degree of moral injury. We we know that there are patients out there, um, but we can't treat them. And uh, you know, I don't know about uh, Sevilla, but we found that a lot of patients didn't actually want to come into the hospital. Is that uh, similar? Yeah, that's that's one of the one of the things that that, that that we had. Uh, we have to say that during the last month, uh, the number of emergencies, even uh, normal standard appendectomy, appendectomy, uh, we didn't have the cases, and um, we start having some cases in, in with peritonitis because people were scared of coming to the hospital. We have observed that there is a. Partially, there have been a delay of the of the people coming to the hospital, and on the other hand, there have been. I would say that in a way, there, we have had less cases like diverticulitis. Uh, we didn't have much diverticulitis. Maybe this change of habit and this uh, washing hands and wearing masks maybe they have an impact on on this gastrointestinal acute procedure that we have to investigate in the future. It is, it is very interesting, it isn't, isn't it? It opens up all of these other avenues. Um, so I'm not going to focus too much on the crisis, although it is really fascinating to see how different uh, countries, different regions have dealt with the problem. Um, what I really want to focus on is the restart. Um, and it sounds to me uh, that this is a problem uh, across the world. How do we now enter a a world of COVID and carry on that activity. So the, the first thing is organization. So in Sevilla, in Spain, uh, how, as you restart your services, now that the curve is flattened, how are you managing uh, your hospital, uh, having uh, COVID hospitals and non-COVID hospitals, or are you having clean areas uh, and areas that you may have infection. How are you dealing with the problem? Since the beginning, we've been working in the hospital with COVID areas and non-COVID and COVID-free areas. Uh, okay. Only emergency at the worst, uh, and, and at the ICUs. Is we have different units of ICUs and ICUs uh, um, areas where kept just for COVID patients and in emergency it's been that way. And in fact, the area for COVID patients. Uh, was so big at that, at that moment that now we have to reorganize the emergency because we need more area for conventional patients that have been off and didn't come to the yeah. hospital. And now we are, we are reorganizing and, and, and we're still maintaining the COVID area, but we have to reorganize the emergency and ICU because we need more beds for the non-COVID area. But I think it's important message that as long as you have COVID and the pandemic is there, you should have clean areas in your hospital to restart elective surgery. And I think that's a controversy that many people are, are struggling with because um, in our um, uh, country, what they are trying to do is have a, a, a clean hub 
and uh, a hospital that deals with more COVID uh, patients. But I, I think ultimately we're going to have to go back to our, our old systems uh, but maintain COVID and non-COVID areas uh, as you are doing. So that, that's it. that is a really important point about organisation. Has it meant that there are new partnerships or new networks that have established because of the pandemics? I'm really looking at the private and the public sector working together. Or, or has it has has each institution managed its own uh, facilities and patients population? Well, I, I always in in Spain, you know that there is a, a 70% of uh, public systems, and even that 100% of the population have the access to public systems. Uh, there is 70%, 30% of the patients are being operated, and and, and they go to, to private systems. But there is a political issue behind that, and you know there is always these things between what is better. If you're going to be more comfortable, the quality is better or not. I'm, I work in both sides. I work in the public and I work in the private. And I always say the same. I think the combination and common strategy is necessary, not even just to defeat this pandemic, just to for, for the easy going of the health system. Because it works. I mean, they, they can combine and share resources and share uh, same um, way of organizing uh, they, they, they help you. And I guess you've you demonstrated that now. So you've got the patients now, uh, you were dealing with your cancer cases. Were you doing anything in terms of testing those patients? Because we seem to be getting data through that there's a very high mortality in COVID patients having elective surgery or patients that develop COVID-19. So did you do any testing of your patients and also how did you manage your staff? Yeah, that is, um, today we have to start with benign procedure. It's my first day in some benign procedure. We are testing all our patients. I have to tell you that uh, regarding patients, um, during the last month or the last uh, 40 days, is we've been doing oncological procedure and the number of PCR available at the hospital were low because, you know, there was the, 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 uh, all the, uh, the infected infectologists didn't have time to, to organize everything to, to be able to, to perform a lot of PCR. So what we did during the first uh, uh, period of the pandemic, the way of testing patients since there were oncological cases, we were doing t- chest CT scan to all our patients. Okay. That was, that was the first step that we went through. Since we have the possibility of have, of have uh, blood serology and PCR, uh, the, the, the the protocol has changed, and we've been discussing internally for the last two weeks um, uh, together with a group of, of healthcare professionals in the hospital and also at the health, uh, Ministry of Health level uh, with a group of anesthesiologists, preventivists, uh, infectologists. We have deciding how to run the protocol and avoiding CT scans uh, to patients with benign procedures. Yeah. Um, and we've been working with that, and at the end, today, was the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of the uh, Autonomous Community in the different, in, in the south of state, have decided to do, to perform a PCR to all our patients. So they okay. go to an important, because I think it's very important, 
to point out that the clinical and the epidemiological screening is very important when you call the patient to tell to come to the hospital. We are in an important discussion, the, the value of the blood serology to our patients, uh, because we think that, that today the problem that we have is the sensitivity of these, of these tests is not clear. And the different tests itself, uh, themselves are different from one to another company who comes with the test to you. So at the end today, the advice is to perform a PCR to all our patients. But I have to tell you that the important data that I'm going to uh, give you that I got like only 10 minutes ago, that so far uh, out of more than 1,000 PCR to our patient in the last, for the patient of last week, because it's a very large hospital, we got zero percent of patient positive. Wow. But on the other hand, I will give you some data that last week of the unit of, for example, of Professor Targadona in Barcelona, that they were getting their patient, oncological patient, uh, to go in the OR, they got 40% of patient PCR, uh, the PCR of the, of the patient were positive. So you said, but what is the difference? The epidemiolo epidemiological situation of the different areas. So I think yeah. uh, we don't have data to know exactly what to do, I have to tell you, uh, because we don't know. PCR seems to be very effective in areas like Madrid or Barcelona and in Seville, this PCR seems not to be very effective. But of course, to be able to say that, we need that data. So we have to work in a collaborative, collaborative way between the different areas with different levels of, of numbers of numbers to know exactly what is the best to be to be done. Now today, PCR. But we yeah. will analyze the data and come with better data to know exactly what to do depending on, on the situation of the population where you be. Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is, I've had several conversations over the last few weeks with uh, different surgeons from all over the world, and certainly in China, there was a big um, move for CT of the chest, um, but of course, as, as the, the pandemic matures, we're getting the data that you that you are talking about, so it, it is really interesting, but what about your staff? What are you, what are you doing with staff to... to well. Make, make sure that this doesn't become a nosocomial infection. Yeah, I have to tell you uh, my opinion and also what the people is doing. Um, yeah. I work in two settings, one is the public and one is the, pub, and the, and the uh, public and the, and the private. In the private, two weeks ago, uh, we got a test, a blood test to know the serology. And in the, in the private, in the public, last week I got a blood test with a with the in my tip of my finger. Right. So all of them were negative. So in the hospital next door to my hospital, they were doing this fast test, and out of 200 cases, uh, 200 tests, all were negative. Even with with uh, healthcare professionals that that they have their PCR positive two weeks ago. So it didn't matter. Oh, wow. Well, this, so there is two two things to consider. First, sensitivity of those tests. What yes. are, are you using blood serology? Are you using fast test, uh, fast test uh, with capillary? Uh, when you talk about testing healthcare professional, what are you talking about? This is very, very, very important. This is the first thing. Second question is how often are you going to do it? Because you can get you can get the infection today, but maybe tomorrow you go to the supermarket, you get infected, 
And uh, what happened one day doesn't mean that what happened next day. So you will need a test every single day. Are you going to do it every day, every week, every 15 days? What does it mean? In my opinion, what do we need? This is just a first. Now I come for the personal opinion. We need to test the patient. We need to test the patient because if a patient comes to the hospital with, uh, the, with infected, this could spread the infection inside the hospital to healthcare professionals and they can get in trouble because then the morbidity and the mortality will be high. Okay. Now, if you, t- you don't test if the professional, if you can infect it to the hospital and you have your mask and you maintain the distance and you follow the rules, the possibility are less. So yeah. in my opinion, what you should be very strict is in maintaining this, uh, this, uh, this control of the health care and maintain the, sh- the social distance, the mask, the uh, washing hands inside the hospital. In my personal opinion, it's more important to follow the rule, healthcare professional, than testing the professional. We need it. We need it to know exactly what is the situation of your hospital. But not as a prevention step. I would say that it's more important to follow the rules and not seeing uh, these guys uh, having a coffee in the hospital, uh, breaking the distance without a mask, um, uh, because we don't know what they did yesterday, that was Sunday, uh, with their family and where did they go. So, yeah. so that's, that's the point. It, it makes a lot of sense and I, I would tend to agree with you. Uh, I've been talking to some uh, companies and they seem to think that there is a, you know, there's a bio uh, sort of hug sort of for four days you can try and say that after a test you're, you're not infective but I don't know the the um, absolute accuracy of this and if you're spending a lot of money buying those cartridges and the testing kits and it's not as accurate as you want it to be then you might as well not do the test at all and I, I think as you're saying social distancing wearing the masks the infectivity rate goes down dramatically uh, so so you know it makes a lot of sense but for the patient it has huge implications one as a spreader and the second uh, if they then have a post-operative problem with COVID-19 I, I understand that when they presented some data from Wuhan uh, I believe it was that actually of the people spreading the disease it it's a small proportion it's about 10 or 11 percent so we are just starting to understand this and i think all of the things you've said about the geographical differences in the hotspots barcelona madrid and sevilla how you approach elective surgery testing the patient this forms a, a blueprint that actually some of our politicians can use to unlock society as well, because it's not just medicine, it's, it's all of society. So excellent. I think that that's one of the most cogent uh, discussions about testing I've, I've had, and it, I'm sure the audience will find that really, really interesting. So I'm going to bring you to another controversial area, and I know that uh, you have, you have uh, written the guidelines for the Spanish society. So uh, you and I are... Uh, laparoscopic surgeons we've sat in the bar together and you've shown me how I should be doing uh, laparoscopic abdominal wall reconstruction uh, and, and it was the best education I got at that meeting actually 
So you tell me what you feel about that, Rob. Well, I think I've been going through all the papers with and there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding of the data coming from Lapros. I have to tell you that taking care of the surgery uh, during the, the aerosol produced by a laparoscopy is important. But you have to, to, to think something. Aerosol during the laparoscopy and, and, and smoke is going to be even if you do a laparoscopy or laparotomy. So this is the first thing that you have to think. It's impossible to avoid smoke from an procedure. Second thing, one of the things that people say, avoid energy. I want to write the hand the people who knows how to operate without energy. And this doesn't sense. First advice, avoid energy. I mean, since the beginning, I take my laser with cautery, I take my monoscopal, I take my ligature, my, my thunder beam, whatever, since the beginning of the procedure. And it is impossible to do that. Yeah. So this is the second thing that you have to consider. And the third thing is we have to analyze where aerosol comes from. Aerosol comes from different areas. First one is smoke, blood, bile, and peritoneal fluid. I would say those. Let's go yeah. and analyze each one. Smoke is being detected some other virus like, like HIV or hepatitis in the smoke but even being detected are not infectious. Yes. So the question is, SARS-CoV-2 have not been detected in the smoke. Other respiratory yes. viruses like Mars, uh, Mars and the Middle East one, the MERS, have not been detected. So smoke seems not to be the problem. Second, blood. SARS-CoV-2 have been detected in the blood only in very extreme cases with important respiratory disease. In those cases, you're not going to operate the patient because the patient is not in the condition to undergo a Yeah, they've had a heavy viral load. They've got really bad chest. They wouldn't even make it to surgery. Agreed. Bile, not identifying the bile. If you're doing a cholecystectomy, you open the gallbladder, not identifying the body. And we have the fourth one, peritoneal fluid. Yeah. You have to analyze that paper in two steps. First, again. So, so this, is, is, this is the paper from PISA? That's right. Correct. You have yeah. to analyze two things in this peritoneal fluid. First one, one you mentioned, heavy virus load. So you need a lot of virus in the body of the patient to, be, to have the virus there. And the second thing is that they did PCR of the peritoneal fluid. And I'll come to this. When you perform a PCR to a patient in the, in the nasopharyngeal uh, slot, the third of the four PCR, even they're positive, doesn't mean that the patient is infectious. Because if you culture, culture the virus, it doesn't, it, it's not there. So having a PCR negative positive in the peritoneal fluid means that there is part of the, of the virus, RNA, but doesn't mean that there are virus, and they didn't culture that virus. So, and if you see the graphic of a paper that recently published, while the virus load goes there in the nasopharyngeal flower, 
the PCR maintained positive for a longer period of time. So that means that having a PCR positive doesn't mean that you're going to contaminate. Agreed. Agreed. With all this data, all these aerosol from laparoscopy, you don't have enough to say you have to avoid laparoscopy. You have to have cautious, but I would say that we've been doing things the wrong way for the last 20 years. We were allowing the smoke coming out of the trucker. We were not worried about filters. We were not worried about protecting ourselves. So there will be a new era of laparoscopy after the COVID because it's because we were doing things in the wrong way. I, I totally agree, and, and uh, I was going to get talked to you about that. You know, one of the things I'd like to just ask you is, you know, the pandemic has taught us a lot, but can you tell me, for you personally, what lessons will have have you learned that will go on into the post-pandemic era? Is it what you've just said about the new proper way of doing laparoscopy? Yeah, I think we, we need them. Um, I have to tell you, I'll give you an example. Uh, last week I did a case, and I was wearing one of the face shields on my team. Um, and when we finish, the, um, we use filters, we use uh, we take care of the, removing the specimen very nice. We uh, we remove all the nemoperitoneum before to remove the specimen. We take care of the trocar every single step. You know, at the end of my, uh, my procedure, when I remove, my face shield, there was blood on my on my cover. So, oh wow! Yeah, and, and we follow the, all the rules. So that means that in a standard conventional procedure that I've been performing for the last 20 years, how many drops did I get in my eye? Only in my nose, yeah. thousands, millions. And we were not aware of that. So that, that means that it will be a new wear of laparoscopy with filters, taking care, covering, maybe using glasses. And, and we need to develop this uh, way of the OR setting for laparoscopic surgery. Because we have the problem of the foggy in the glasses. We, we don't know how to manage ourselves in the OR with a glass. Mm. And, and, yeah. and, with, and how to, when to connect the filter. We don't know anything about that. So there will be, I'm sure there will be um, new safety instructions for performing laparoscopic surgery in the future. I couldn't agree with you more. I think there will be a stepwise, uh, dare I say it, a checklist to make sure that the operating room and the staff are properly trained and then that they are actually doing those procedures. And, and I think that's a sensible way to go. I think protecting the staff is important. Uh, you know, like you, um, my experience is that everything has slowed down because of the PPE and getting the patient to sleep and all these precautions, but that will speed up. So we have to find this new normal that everyone keeps talking about. Um, so Salva, we've, we've covered a, a lot of topics. I guess, you know, you've given us a, a, a nice roadmap of uh, getting the service restarted. Is there anything else you feel we haven't touched on that's important to, to the audience who are, who are thinking, how, how can we get back to treating our patients? I think, I think it's important what we're doing. I, I just want to point out that, that this uh, possibility of, 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 I think, the global communication among surgeons is being very, very, very important. Yeah. Uh, and I think we, have to, we don't have to lose that. 
uh, this new way of, 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 of sharing information, of doing podcasts, webinars, and, and I think it will be more important in the, in, the, in the future. I know that this new normality is going to be difficult because I love to go to conferences, to be with my friends, to, to share like a cup of coffee and discuss about what, what's going on, how would you do that? But I think this is uh, something that we have to find out the proper way to, to continue in the future. The, the, the you know this uh, uh, human behavior behavior for surgeons in, in the future. But for sure, I think collaborative uh, way of, of of going on in the future will be very important. And I think we we make an important step forward in the future. In fact, we will have the first virtual congress of the European Hernia Society soon, but I will miss to, to be with my uh, hernia friends around the world discussing about new protocol, new projects, new no, I, I agree with you. I think there is nothing uh, that can replace that human contact. But as you said, for an, from an educational point of view uh, and from a moral point of view, when, when we are trying to get educated and learn, actually, I've been close to, to people uh, by doing virtual congresses uh, and, and, and Zoom meetings uh, and webcasts, and, uh, as you say. So there will be a new normal. Uh, Salva? It has been, as always, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'm going to bring things to an end. Um, so I'm sure uh, the audience will join me in thanking you for sharing your expertise, uh, but not just sharing your expertise uh, for the work that you are doing uh, in leadership uh, to to uh, show uh, us, uh, your uh, as well as your national bodies, uh, the way forward. So thank you very much, Salva. Thank you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to be with you, uh, and always. Uh, I hope you can come to Sevilla soon and visit uh, my family. As you were going to do last month. Yeah, absolutely. That the, the trip to Sevilla will happen. Don't worry. Thank you, Salva. And uh, on on behalf of uh, the Johnson and Johnson Institute and uh, the AIS channel, I'd like to thank you, the audience, for listening in. Uh, we will have lots of resources uh, up on the AIS uh, website uh, for the future. Uh, and of course, uh, thank you to the J&J, uh, sorry, uh, Johnson & Johnson Institute and uh, the AIS channel for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to share some of these experiences with you. Thank you. If you need more assets to help keep fighting this pandemic, go to covid19.aischannel.com or aischannel.com. Looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. Stay safe.